0: Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo, but at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change. In special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Disruptive Storytelling is sponsored by the Modern Military Association of America. Founded in 1993, MMAA is the nation's largest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing fairness and equality for the LGBTQ military and veteran community. Learn more about what the change makers at MMAA are up to at modernmilitary.org. Welcome back to Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. I'm your host, Jennifer Barnhill, the Chief Operating Officer for Partners in Promise. Today, I am joined by U.S. Air Force retired Colonel, Dee Dee Hathill, who is featured in Dr. Brené Brown's Dare to Lead, and was even described by Dr. Brown as one of her leadership heroes and, I quote, a total badass. During her 25-year career in the Air Force, Didi became a trusted advisor to some of our highest ranking military leaders, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense. Deployed twice during the Iraq War, Dee has firsthand experiences as a leader and advisor when dealing with the most difficult circumstances often when lives were at risk, and when there were no easy answers. She understands military leadership, not just by studying it, but by actually living it. Didi realized that despite cultural norms taught and embraced by the military, traditional leadership often lacked the skills to navigate the often overlooked area of emotions like empathy and shame which prevented leaders from having the difficult conversations that promoted organizational connection versus severing that connection. Whether it's wholehearted discussions regarding mental health, racial injustice, or gender inequality, Dee believes these painful topics can be more efficiently addressed by stepping into the arena of vulnerability, which is the path to true courage. Dee became a certified Dare to Lead facilitator in 2019 and is also a senior executive coach certified through Georgetown University's Executive Leadership Coaching Program. Today, she joins us to talk about stigma and how we can learn to navigate this issue that faces military families and military service members, and also how we can learn to write our own narratives. Let's hear what she has to say. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm joined today by Dee Dee Halfhill. Hi, Dee Dee. How are you doing? Hi, Jennifer. We did our little intro earlier, kind of introducing you to the audience. But I'd love to kick it to you and just tell everybody your background with the military what you're up to now, and what has brought you here to this podcast today? Well, thank
1: you. So as I'm sure you mentioned, I'm a recently retired Air Force officer. I spent 25 years with the United States Air Force. My background was primarily what we call public affairs, so communications. I did have an opportunity to command twice in my career, both at the squadron and the group level. So I had this wonderful balance of um, leadership within small structure from a public affairs perspective, leadership in in an advising capacity, and then also traditional leadership as a a commander. And then now that I'm retired, I am working with a company called P-Link Leadership to really dive into leadership development from a perspective of really looking at not only what are the competencies we have, but who are we as people, both from a character and a consciousness perspective. So, um, what are the skills I have? Who am I? Who do I want to be? And really what is the purpose and difference I want to make? We wrap all of that up into who we are as leaders.
0: For those who may have not known, um, you uh, were featured in Brene Brown's book *Dare to Lead* in the beginning of that book, and it was a. For those who haven't picked it up, it's a really wonderful book that talks about how you can be a leader, like we're what you're saying right now, and how you can apply different concepts to your life, and how this relates to what we're talking about today is stigma. As as anyone who's listened to any of the other episodes of this podcast would know is that stigma is both felt and experienced. And so when we feel stigma, when we think about, oh, mental health and the stigma that surrounds that, it's often felt through shame. And so sometimes when we are dealing with shame, that is uh, Brene Brown's research area, her expertise. And I know that you you have done a lot of work in that area. And in your personal military experience, there was in the book featured a lot of really heavy concepts about shame, about loneliness, feeling alone, and how to approach that within the military context. Can you kind of expand a little bit about that, that little excerpt from the book and what, what that was all about?
1: Yeah, it was a really, thank you. It was a really profound moment in my career. I had been following the work of Dr. Brown since about 2010. The point of the time when the story happened was 2000. I think 2017. And so I've been really following her work. She's a researcher for those who don't know her. She's a researcher on shame, vulnerability, courage, and empathy are the four main topics that she's really spent over 20 years digging into and understanding how do they show up for us. And at that point, most of what I had read of her or had listened to podcasts she'd done, you know, it was really about how did those show up for us in life and not as much professionally there wasn't as much of a discussion at that time on what does this look for what does this look like for us as leaders but i really believed that so much of it was important to us as leaders and how we lean into these emotions don't just affect who we are as people as parents as partners but they show up for us all the time as leaders. And so following her work started to really give me a comfort with language, uh, the language of emotion I didn't have prior to really following her. And so on this particular day, I was out talking to a group of airmen and I had asked them if they had any questions. And at that point, one airman raised his hand and he said, no, ma'am, when is the ops tempo going to slow down? Because I'm really tired. And, you know, I had just come from a command where I had heard every wing commander in the command, tell the four-star the same thing. Our airmen are really tired. And so it was something I was used to hearing. And so I said to the airmen and I said, yeah, I hear you. And I said, if I were to ask the group today, like who's tired, how many of you would raise their hands and you know, almost everyone in the group raised their hand because like, you're around the military, you know, we ask a lot of people, it's pretty busy pace, you know, we're deployed, we're not deployed, we're training, we're not training, we're going through an inspection. And so it's just one thing after another. And so, so many of us probably can relate to this feeling of like, oh, I'm just so tired. I'm exhausted. And so, you know, the whole group raised their hand that day, but ironically, I had just read an article in Harvard Business Review like three days prior. And the article was talking about this organization that was going into these five different companies that were all reporting high levels of exhaustion. And it wanted to understand what was happening in these companies that their employees were reporting such high levels of exhaustion. And after spending months with them, looking at their operations, looking at their personnel policies, looking at their leadership, you know, environments, their cultures, what they found was not that people were tired, but that people were lonely. And like, so I kind of had this in the back of my mind. And so standing there that day, when the entire group said to me, like, we're tired, I Told them the story about reading this article, and then said to them, If I were to ask you today, instead of who's tired, who's lonely, how many of you would raise your hands? And even the way I asked the question, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I was like, You know, how many of you would raise your hands almost with the tone of, I'm not expecting anyone to raise their hands. And at least half the group that day raised their hands. And I stood there for a moment, really not knowing what to do, because as a commander at the time, I was the second mission support group commander. And as a commander, we spend so much time trying to understand the challenge of suicide, the thought process behind suicide, the intervention that we can take as fellow airmen and service members when one of our own is contemplating such a final decision, and we spend so much time trying to understand it to to decrease the number of people who are, are taking that ultimate action, right? And so I thought, oh my gosh! And it was the first time really in my career where I. I saw this shift in reaction because of the language I was using. And so I stood there for a minute. We had a great conversation about what does loneliness really mean? How do we talk about it? How do we address it? How do we, you know, even just the acknowledgement of it was a huge step for so many. And it was such a moment for me because I thought, oh my gosh, they opened up to me in a a way that I hadn't had people open up to me before. And so I kind of started sharing this story as anywhere I could, like anyone who would listen, I'd go to staff meeting and I'd share the story. And if I found myself in front of another squadron, I'd share the story because I realized like, we got to talk about this and we got to talk about it differently. And the more I told the story, the more I would see people in the crowd tearing up. The more I would have people come up to me afterwards and want to talk to me about their own experience with what we all too often really understand is a really raw emotion. It's a hard emotion. There's sometimes a lot of shame and feeling that we're lonely and we're not. You know, we're we're neurobiologically wired for love and connection, and so loneliness is really an, an awareness and an acknowledgement that we don't feel like we belong. And that we are not in that, that tribe, that group, that connected space that we so desperately want to be in as humans. The most profound part was young airmen would come up to me. Most of the time as a colonel, like anyone who's around a military structure, you know that you don't often have, you know, E1s, E2s, E3s walking up to the colonel and sharing heartfelt Emotions and experiences. But the more I would be out there and the more I would tell this story, the more these really young airmen would come up to me, telling me their story, but also opening themselves up for me to help them. And that's when I really realized like this language matters. The language we use matters. As a leader, if I say, Are you tired? And you say, yes, I'm potentially going to send you off to go get some rest, take some leave. But if what's really happening is you say to me, if I, if I can say to you, you know, are you lonely? I'm conveying in the shift of one word that I understand the experience. I'm a safe place to talk about the experience and you can trust me to lean into it with you which is really empathy, right? Like I'm here with you. And so I became really passionate about like, we've got to words matter. That's probably my communications background, right? Words matter. And so as leaders, we've got to get a lot more comfortable with the language of emotion. If we want to be able to have conversations that get at so many of the challenges, our service is facing today, our services are facing, whether that's the uncertainty of COVID, what it was to go into COVID, what it means to come back from COVID, the you know the conversations we're having right now around race relations in the country. And then certainly the continued challenges we're seeing with mental health. Mental health rates are climbing at a rate that should scare all of us, not just in the military, but in society. So- I've kind of shared a lot there. I'll kind of take a pause and see what questions.
0: No, well, I know you're right. That language really does matter. And the words that we use matter. And as leaders are forming new policies and you know, there is a lot of turnover within the military and leadership. And so obviously the people who you might've been working alongside might not be right there today, but when you were working alongside other leaders, what was the reception of this? newfound like kind of a light light bulb moment for you where you you realize the power of those words and the impact that they had on those younger generations coming up behind you and h- how realistic is it to think that we're gonna get a lot of leaders using this language like is it something that is accessible to them did you think it was something because you were a woman you know identified as a woman that was that easier for people to talk to you do you think I mean obviously there's a lot in this conversation, but in order to address stigma, in order to address shame, you have to talk about it. So what are some Mm -hmm. of those impressions that you had when you were, when you were in it?
1: Gosh, there's so many. I think the first one I would say is, you know, the deeper I got into this work, the more I followed Dr. Brown's work. There's another person. I just love Dr. Susan David, Dr Bruce Perry like there's so many amazing authors and researchers out there who are really digging into emotion and how it affects us. I think it's Dr Mark Brackett, he's at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. All of them have come, you know, through all of their research what they've identified is that on average we can really identify three emotions in ourselves and others: happy, mad, and sad. And so what all of their research is showing is that we one, don't have emotional language. And because we don't have that emotional language, we're very unpracticed in how to process emotion. Like we just have gotten to this place in society where we see emotion as out of control. Like you are either emotionless and totally in control or you are out of control if you are expressing and experience emotion. And so we've kind of you know, bottled everything up I was laughing because a couple of weeks ago I was watching Shits Creek. I was a slow comer to the show.
0: It's so uh, great. It's so it great. So <laughs> <laughs> Once you finish the end of Netflix and you start it again, you know, it's a it's a good one. <laughs> yeah.
1: But in one of the episodes, Roland was in the room next door and blaring on blaring on the radio was Melissa Manchester cry out loud. And there's a line in that song that says, keep it inside, learn how to hide your feelings. And this is in the chorus over and over and over again. And I thought, gosh, how much we as a society have conditioned ourselves to hide our feelings, like just push it down, shove it down and just avoid them. But we're seeing, we're seeing the ramifications of that. We're seeing the disconnection. We feel we're seeing the mental health rates because we're not, equipped and practiced at really processing our own emotions, identifying our emotions. Dr. Mark Brackett says, you know, the more we can identify our emotions, the more we can name them and label them. You kind of got to name it to tame it. The more we can do that, the more quickly they pass through us and the more resilient we become. But we're not practice of that. If you think about the fact that we can identify three emotions, happy, mad, and sad, So I'm a dare to lead facilitator. And when we take people through the full dare to lead curriculum, what I notice most is that same thing. We just don't have that emotional language. And all too often when we're taking commanders through from a military perspective, because we run this course as part of a squadron commanders course for one of the commands in the air force. And so we've taken hundreds of squadron commanders and their spouses through this program now and when we take people through the program it's the same thing they just aren't practiced with the language and because they're not practiced with the language they're certainly not practiced with knowing how those emotions have shown up for them something i would love to acknowledge because we get this question a lot is that as a female was i more equipped to have this conversation around emotions and I would have told you a couple years ago that yes, I think as a female, I was probably a little more practiced, but I stand corrected now because I've met so many men or, you know, I've, and it's not just women and men, it's that masculinity, femininity, right. But I've met so many men who are just as knowledgeable and equipped in the space of emotion as I have women. So I would say that I don't find a gender difference per se. It's kind of funny because my boyfriend is one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. And I would have thought I was an empathetic person until I met him. And he is so naturally gifted in the space of empathy. And really all empathy is, is understanding and connecting to the emotion Under an experience, not necessarily relating to the experience, but the emotion that experience might trigger. And he does this so naturally and so beautifully. I was having a conversation with my mom at the start of COVID, and my mom works in a grocery store. She's a cashier at a grocery store in my hometown, Dubuque, Iowa. And some woman had come through her line and was very frustrated about her kids being back home. And she's telling my mom, this whole story about having to cook a lot and blah, blah, blah. And as she's telling this, she kind of does this exasperated like expression. And she spits on my mom a little bit. And my mom oh, freaks no. out. I know my mom yeah. like, <laughs> freaks out because she's got now like someone else's saliva on her hand or something. Right. And that was in the beginning of COVID. We didn't really know how it was, you know, how it
0: was transmitted, transmitted. or <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Thank you. Ah, I couldn't come up with the word right away. I go into what we call, you know, an empathy miss. I go into fix it mode. Like mom, you need to be wiping things down. You need to be, you know, hand sanitizing. You need to be taking a step back. You need to go talk to the managers. They need to put plexiglass up. And I was just right into like, you need to A, B, C, D, like, let's just knock this out and get it done. And as military officers, Military leaders at any rank, we're kind of conditioned to be fixers. We're not conditioned to have empathy. And so my mom does what my mom always does. She starts to dismiss me, and you can kind of tell she's getting quiet. And, you know, but that's our normal way of operating with each other. And my boyfriend comes into the room, and I say to my mom, I said, Mom, tell Stefan what happened. And I'm expecting Stefan to be in my camp to very quickly say to my mom, Lynn, you need to really be careful, blah, blah, blah. And she tells him the whole story. And his very first response was he leans into the computer screen because this is on FaceTime. He leans into the computer screen and he just says to her, that must have been so hard. And oh. I just watched my mom melt. And I was like, I have been teaching this stuff. It's and not easy. It. <laughs> no, no. I didn't do it. And it just comes so naturally to him. So he has really taught me that this is not about men or women. Do I think that maybe men have been conditioned a little more by society to not embrace and understand their emotions? Yes. But I think it is not inherently more common in one or the other. I think we may have been conditioned and taught differently, but emotional experiences are not unique to one or the other.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, for people who are, are listening and, and kind of trying to address areas of stigma and shame in their own lives, and maybe they have these initial feelings where they're not as empathetic as they want to be, you know, they're learning it's a process, it's a growth process. And so, we can read books and that's one area that you can kind of begin to examine yourself and how you might contribute to the stigma felt by other people. But, you know, there are other ways. Do you have any suggestions for how people can kind of begin that work if they're kind of new to that process? Um, I know for me and and part of what we're doing here is just talking about it. And this is on a podcast. So it's not necessarily that face-to-face interaction that we would like, but That's just like one way. Do you have any other ways or is that really the best way is to just get to know other people?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much you can do. I think the first thing we have to do is we have to get really comfortable with identifying it, right? Not just brushing those shame experiences, those shame feelings, that feeling of stigma under the rug. We have to start bringing it into the light and we have to first acknowledge it in ourselves what's happening. We have to get better about reality checking it, getting curious about the way we're feeling. I love Dr. Susan David because she says emotions are not good or bad. They are just data. And so we have to, we give ourselves such a gift when we let go of even stigmatizing emotion and just saying emotion is just data. What is it trying to tell me about who I am, what I value, what's important to me, and then take that data, get curious about the data, and then really reality check it because we are pros at making up our own story, at making up our own narrative. And so when something happens, how do I get curious about it so that I can reality check it and get really comfortable with naming it. Again, I go back to, you kind of got to name it to tame it. The, the better you get at naming an emotion, the faster it will move through you and the less it will it will lessen its hold on you. And so for these emotions like shame and stigma, right? That You said earlier that stigma is that internal feeling. When stigma is internalized, it shows up as shame. The antidote to shame is empathy. So the antidote to shame when someone else is going through it is empathy. If I can tell you, if I can meet you where you are, if I can be there with you, if I can convey that you are not alone, the shame is just, it just disseminates, right? It just decreases. The antidote to self-shame is self-compassion. And so empathy towards self is self-compassion. And so how do we get, how do we start to be compassionate with ourselves so that we're not beating ourselves up when we're rewriting that story? How do we talk to ourselves? Like we would talk to our best friend. I'm fascinated right now. And I'm kind of exploring this topic a little bit more. It's part of what I love about all the dare to lead work is every time you kind of land one concept, suddenly another shows up in your life and it gives you an opportunity to really explore it further. I'm really fascinated right now by the concept of self-trust and what does self-trust and self-compassion do for us? I don't know if you've seen the meme, but it's a 2018 Snoop Dogg clip.
0: Maybe we'll have to do a little search and put it in the show notes at the (laughs) end. It's amazing. I actually
1: just saw it like two days ago. And he says he's like getting his star on the Hollywood Walk of, you know, star Walk of Fame. I don't know what that walk is called, but he's getting his star. And normally people get up there and they thank like all these people, right? The people who the fans who've supported them and the managers who assisted them and all of the people who are behind the scenes and making something like his enterprise operate. And I have no doubt he probably thanked those people, but then he also said, and I want to thank me. I want to thank <laughs> me for always having my back. And I want to thank me for continuing to go when things got hard. And I want to thank me for believing in myself when nobody else did. And I had to laugh because it would be very easy to see that speech as self-serving, self-promoting, right? But wow, what a difference it might make in our lives when it comes to self-trust if we spent a little time in self-gratitude, thanking ourselves for all the moments when we didn't give up on ourselves. But we don't do that. We don't stop long enough to say, when was I really a badass? (laughs) And am I thanking myself for that? Yeah. but we don't, right? We, we forget those moments when we were really there for ourselves. But if we could get to a place where we really could acknowledge those moments when it was hard and we moved forward anyway, when we weren't sure and we were brave enough to take the chance, when our hearts were broken, but we got back in the fight anyway, why don't we stop and thank ourselves for those moments? Because that, in Dee Hatfield's opinion, those are the moments we learn to trust ourselves. We're giving ourselves self-proof of those moments when we did trust ourselves and it worked out to our advantage. It worked out for the direction. You know, it was good for the direction we're going. And so I've become obsessed in the last two days, actually, about really thinking about this idea of self-trust as a product of self-gratitude without getting like arrogant and, you know, all of that stuff. But wow, there were so many moments in my life when it was hard and I took the next step anyway. And I need to acknowledge those moments. I need to remember those moments. I need to build that trust in self.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think when you're talking about building trust, it also is helpful to think of ways to kind of like check your gut and check yourself because obviously you know when people are feeding stigma feeding shame in others they may not even be aware sometimes of the narratives they're writing for themselves and the narratives that they're writing for other people you know at least that's my uh, very naive hope is that people don't always know that they're contributing to some of these conversations and so one exercise that I know that we've kind of talked about in the past is how you write your own narratives, even subconsciously, you're not aware of how you've painted a story, a picture for yourself of the future that hasn't even happened or the past that didn't really happen the way that you're remembering it. We can kind of talk through an example, but I would love to to share an example with the audience of how someone might be experiencing shame because they've written this narrative about themselves or their circumstance that contributes to that feeling and that contributes to that feeling of stigma that's internalized. That way we have those tools to help get ourselves out of some of those self-imposed areas of shame, because we we're talking about mental health a lot. We're putting some of this on ourselves and we have to take some ownership about, you know, the leaders are saying, come forward. If you need help, they're providing resources. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's not, but if it is, we need to be able to trust ourselves. Like you said, and how can we do that? Maybe that narrative that we're writing is one of those ways we can can do that. Can you think of any examples at the moment or am I putting you too much on the spot? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think like if I have. I know one we talked about before was military spouses and how military spouses within the military community often feel that their contribution doesn't matter as much. Mm. You had helped me kind of see that perspective. And I'll even just say, you know, what what you kind of shared with me was that you belonging is important and feeling relevant. And if you're not feeling relevant in your own life, that you kind of create this story for yourself. So if I feel underappreciated by my spouse, my active duty service member spouse, I feel underappreciated by my job who thinks I'm about to move in a couple of years. Well, I might not show up for my spouse or my job in the way that I should. And so I've written that narrative for myself thinking, well, all my peers are off, you know, with high paying jobs because they didn't have to move every two to three years like I did. They had X, Y, Z happen to them and for them. And I didn't have that. The sacrifices I made have done X, Y, and Z. And we kind of dig ourselves into a hole. That was one example you shared with me. Uh, I know that when it comes to shame, there's so many more. <laughs> it's really hard. I think the, impo- I'm trying to think of a story. If I think of a story, I will certainly share it, but something that's coming to
1: mind as you're saying that is, um, you know, Dr. Brown's research has shown that the number one shame trigger at work is fear of irrelevance. And when we are in shame, we behave in one of three very patterned ways. I shouldn't say we behave in one. We behave in very patterned ways. I can honestly say I've shown up in all three, but one way is we move toward, we become people pleasers. We perform, we pretend, we perfect, we, you know, we protect, we do everything to appease, to not be, to, to not be kind of kicked out of that space of love and belonging. We move away. We go into hiding, we become secret, you know, we use secrecy, we don't share, we just kind of shut down. And then the third way is we, what she calls move against. So we become aggressive, violent, we use shame to fight shame. So if you think of the number one way, the number one shame trigger at work is fear of irrelevance. Anytime we are in that shame, we are potentially behaving in one of those three ways. And so when we feel that, when we feel that need to protect, to defend, you know, we are going to, in line with her work, we're going to put armor on to protect ourselves. Anytime we fear judgment, hurt, ridicule, it's not safe. We're going to put that armor on and that armor stops us from being seen. That armor stops us from connecting. That armor stops us from showing up and really letting our gifts come out. You know, when I first started following Dr. Brown in 2010, I would hear her talk about shame. And admittedly, I was like, "Eh, that's a really uncomfortable topic for me. It's not one I think I'm equipped to talk about or we should be talking about at work. And I've really had a change of heart over the last couple of years because I realized that all of the moments I wasn't showing up, in a way that I wanted to show up any moment in which I was showing up, that was not in integrity with who I said I was going to be. It was usually a product of shame. It was a product of some belief I had of not being good enough, not smart enough, not, you know, I don't know, not thin enough, not, not creative enough, not intelligent enough, like some idea of not perfect enough. You know, I didn't look right. I didn't act right. I didn't, didn't sound right. And anytime that would happen, anytime I would go into that, not enough narrative, inevitably I would behave badly. I would do something that was out of integrity with who I said I was going to be. And it could be as simple as passive aggressive. I would get passive aggressive with my teammates. It also sometimes looked like shaming my teammates for not, not producing the way I thought they should produce, not leading the way I thought they should lead. So. I don't think that's really answering your
0: question. Uh, well, it is it, it because it actually makes me think of some others that we write for other people because we do write narratives for other people. And, you know, one, you could think about the election cycle and the narratives we write for the other side. It's always the other side. It's generally not our own side that we're writing. And if they loved this, they wouldn't behave this way. And that doesn't necessarily paint a full picture of the circumstance for that one. And it's. It, one person might think that way, but the you cannot make such sweeping generalizations, which is where a lot of stigma lies. It's that sweeping generalizations based upon the narratives that we're writing for other people and for ourselves. And so I think it does, you know, does talk to that. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up today, I just want to kick it back to you and see if you had any other thoughts about the work that you're doing now and kind of any suggestions or resources that you would recommend folks who maybe are earlier in this kind of learning journey about themselves and maybe how they can best show up for other people as well. I like to call it sitting with sadness, but it could be <laughs> you're sitting with something that's uncomfortable. It's okay to talk about, but there are resources out there and, and people doing great work. So I'd love to kick it back over to you.
1: Yeah. I'd love to recommend a few of my favorite books of late, I am a big Brene Brown fan and obviously Dare to Lead is one of my favorites. But even before Dare to Lead, her two, I would say the two products of hers that I love the most is she has a six hour audio program on Amazon called Power of Vulnerability. And it's an extended version. It's an extended discussion that most of us have seen in her TED talk, that power of vulnerability, which is, I think, like 19 minutes, but this is six hours that really dives into all of these concepts of courage and empathy and shame and vulnerability. And then I also, for me personally, really loved her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, because I think it just really helps us look at we're imperfect. We're perfectly imperfect. And there's so many gifts we're hiding because of that armor to protect ourselves And when we can get really clear on how we can take some of that off, like just the gifts we have to give to the world are magic. I love Dr. Susan David's work, uh, emotional agility, which is really taking the, I would say, taking the emotion out of emotion, right? It doesn't, we take, we emotions are neutral. They're not good or bad. I'm reading right now, doctor, a, a new book called what happened to you by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry and it is a game changer because i think when you talk about stigma it really is trying to shift all of the helping communities whether that be the mental health the medical education any of these systems that we are around all the time and that are trying to grow, you know help society they talk about the impact of trauma on us as really, at, the, at the youngest of ages as infants as you know young young children and shifting that narrative from what's wrong with you, which is a really shame-based narrative to what happened to you. What was the experience that happened in your life that is really leading you to protect in the way you're protecting now, in behaving in the way you're behaving now? And there's so, the book is so incredibly powerful in showing that all of us are behaving in ways that are products of these experiences we had as children where we had no control over, we had had no control, we had no predictability. And I'm fascinated by what that might mean to us as leaders, as we try to create space that allows people to come into the military and heal. You know, I myself would say that like almost all of society, I had things happen to me as a child that even, even as an adult, I'm still somewhat protecting against, but what does it mean to belong and create space for healing of those narratives? I'm I'm loving the book and I'd highly recommend it uh, for anyone who is fascinated by this idea of how are we showing up in, in, in shame and how do we rewrite that narrative? Because so much of the shame comes from the systems that we are seeking help from when we believe something is wrong with us versus just believing something happened to us. And it's a completely natural experience and behavior to react to it.
0: Well, Didi, thank you so much for joining today um, and for the insights that you've provided. I know that there's a lot of work to be done, but having these conversations is just part of that. And obviously learning more about yourselves as an individual will only stand to help you become more empathetic and caring of other circumstances as well. Thank you for joining and be sure to listen to our next episode of Military Stigma, Tough Conversations Worth Having. Thank you. If you are experiencing feelings of shame as a result of stigma, know that you are not alone. There are resources available to you. This could look like contacting your military inspector general in case of systemic issues or seeking free counseling services via Military OneSource online or by calling them at 800-342-9647. Want to share your disruptive story? Contact us at info at or visit us on our website at thepromiseact.org.